0: Well, today, as I said, we are wrapping up the book of Genesis. It's been an incredible journey and such a blessing to me personally to study this book. I found myself getting a little bit choked up yesterday as I finalized preparations for today's teaching. And I was was trying to figure out why. And I think it's because the story of Joseph is just so wonderful. I don't have any other word for it, it's just wonderful. And the reason I find it so wonderful is because Joseph, as we've seen over and over again, is such a clear picture of Jesus. And so as you're studying Joseph, it's like your understanding of who Jesus is is becoming clearer. It's an incredible journey. It's been a real blessing to me. It's fed my soul, it's built my faith. And as a preacher, I've learned that even if your message doesn't contain Three practical points that you can apply to your life this week. We are changed by the Holy Spirit when we just get together around the word of God and we talk about Jesus. We just get together around the word and we talk about Jesus. God moves through that. So once again this evening we're gonna talk about Jesus. So let's jump in and be blessed together as we do that. As we open chapter 49, we find Jacob, the father of Joseph, and the men who would make up the later famous 12 tribes of Israel We find Jacob gathering all of his sons together, including Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, whom Jacob has adopted as his own. Jacob is on his deathbed and he wants to share some special final words with his son. And it says, chapter 49, verse 1 And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you. And then underline this in the last days, in the last days. And that's our clue that these are not only gonna be words of wisdom from dad, these are not only going to be words of blessing, but they're also gonna be words of prophecy. The phrase last days or latter days appears 14 times in the Old Testament, and every time it shows up, it deals with prophecy. Each of these sons will go on to be the father, so to speak, of one of the tribes of Israel. And Jacob is going to speak to the future of their tribe. But even more intriguingly, some scholars have proposed that Jacob is actually going to prophesy the entire history, from our perspective, past and future, of the people of Israel in the order that he speaks to his sons. It's a view that I agree with personally, but as I say with everything, don't believe anything that I say. Check it out for yourself, verify it for yourself, come to your own conclusions with the word of God. Jacob says in verse 2, he says, gather together and hear you sons of Jacob and listen to Israel your father. Israel, you'll recall, was the name God gave Jacob later in his life. First kid, Reuben, verse 3, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. At this point, Reuben must have been thinking, hey, this is pretty good. Say it louder for the people in the back, dad. But then he shouldn't have spoken so soon, because in verse 4, he says, unstable as water, you shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. What is he talking about? If you were with us, you'll recall back in Genesis 35, the sordid actions of Reuben, who slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah. And in that study, we talked about how in that culture at that time, it was even worse than sexually immoral. It was a power move to try and take control of the whole family. And here it comes back to cost Reuben dearly. It costs him the role that should have been his by birth. He was the firstborn. He should have been the family patriarch, the head of the family after Jacob died. He's not going to get that. He's also not gonna get the double portion of his inheritance we saw last time that was given to Joseph. And he's gonna miss out on all kinds of opportunities and blessings because he only thought about himself And he didn't think sexual sin was a big deal. This is sobering, church, because 40 years have passed since he did that. 40 years, four decades. He must have thought what what any of us would think if we had done something awful. He must have thought, you know, we're past that. This whole thing's been forgotten and lost to the passage of time, but, but here it is. 40 years later at the end of his father's life coming back to bite him. Oh how I wish it were true that because the Lord forgives us we are freed from the consequences of our sins. I wish that were true. God has forgiven me so there's not gonna be any consequences. But it's not so. While the Lord does indeed forgive us always we still have to deal with the natural earthly consequences of our sins. Never forget that to the man or woman who would say, you know what, I'm I'm gonna sin, I'm gonna do it, then it's real simple. (laughs) I'll just ask the Lord for forgiveness later, he'll forgive me, and everything will be fine. To that man or woman, thinking that way, specifically the Apostle Paul gave warning in his writing to the Galatians, it's on your outlines, he said, do not be deceived God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. He says, don't think you're going to make God look like a fool. Don't think you're going to take advantage of the grace and kindness of God by sinning and asking for forgiveness. The Lord will forgive you, but you'll still have to deal with the earthly consequences of your actions. And if Reuben were with us today, he'd say, it's true. It's true. It's true. Take sin seriously. Its consequences are real. And as we've said before, when you talk to your kids about sin, tell them that. Talk to them about the earthly consequences. Let them know, hey, the Lord will forgive you. He'll always love you, no matter what. You're going to hurt the heart of God if you do that. But he'll love you. He'll forgive you. But you're going to deal with earthly consequences. Serious earthly consequences. And also, once again, we see God bypass the firstborn and go to a less likely set of candidates. In this instance, Joseph, as we said, will get the double portion of the inheritance. Joseph will become the family patriarch. The role of priest in the family will be taken up by Levi, and the kingly right to rule is gonna fall upon Judah. All this speaks of the earliest days of Israel's history, prophetically, where they are at. Write it down. They're a disappointing people. They're a disappointing people. You know, as soon as they were birthed as a nation, when they were coming out of Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, being led by Moses, seeing those incredible miracles, camping at the base of Mount Sinai, what did they do? They committed spiritual fornication. While Moses was up on the mountain getting the word of the Lord for the people, they were fornicating, dancing naked before a Golden calf idol they had made, worshiping the idol as God. You know the story. Moses was so disappointed, he comes down the mountain and he throws down the two tablets of the Ten Commandments in despair and frustration. Israel started out a disappointing people, just as Reuben was a disappointing son. Verse 5, he goes on and he says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. So why does Jacob lump these two together? Well, it's because. They joined forces back in Genesis 34 to rescue and avenge their sister Dina. If you thought the previous story about Reuben was weird, maybe you'll recall this crazy story that their sister Dina was kidnapped and raped and so they made a fake peace treaty with the people responsible, the Shechemites, and had them all circumcise themselves. And then while they were all in the painful healing process, Simeon and Levi went into Shechem and not only rescued their sister, but killed all the men who were in too much pain to recover. And then after that, the other brothers came and plundered the city, took all the women and children captive as slaves. And Jacob's reaction was, what are you doing? Are you guys out of your minds? Everyone's gonna wanna kill us now. And Jacob never forgot that either, which is why he says of them, instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. In other words, don't let them get any honor from being my sons. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. That last line just means they were always doing foolish things out of anger. Things that wouldn't make sense that would come back to bite them later. They were ruled by their emotions. Verse seven. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So Jacob never really let that Shechem incident go. It comes up here again more than 40 years later. And his prophecy about them will come true, there will never be an area of Israel known as Simeon because that tribe won't ever end up owning territory for very long. And Levi will become the priestly tribe who wasn't even allowed to own land but is scattered across over 40 cities around Israel. This speaks prophetically of the stage of Israel's history when they would become a dispersed people. Write that down. A dispersed people. Israel would be scattered two times after becoming a nation just as these were two brothers, Simeon and Levi. The Assyrians around 722 B.C., and the Babylonians, around 586 B.C., would both take Israel away in captivity because instead of trusting God, you might recall, they made military agreements with the Egyptians, putting their faith in the Egyptians rather than in God to take care of them. They were self-willed just like Simeon and Levi. Both brothers and Israel were therefore scattered and dispersed by the Lord. Verse eight, it says, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. In other words, your brothers are going to bow down before you. And that would be true because as we said earlier, Judah would become the royal kingly tribe that would produce Israel's two greatest kings in history, David and Solomon. But most notably, it's also the tribe that will produce the king of kings in the future, Jesus Christ, the lion of what? Judah, the lion of Judah. He's from the tribe of Judah. Verse nine going on, he says, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? Now tune in because verse 10 is a messianic prophecy. It's a prophecy about the coming Messiah who we know would be Jesus. But underline all of verse 10. You need to know it. It says the scepter shall not depart from Judah. The scepter was that sort of stick with the ball on top that a king would have. Nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Shiloh is a term for Messiah, and it was recognized as that by rabbis and Jewish scholars hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. They recognized this as a messianic prophecy. And what this prophecy is saying is it's saying, once a king is appointed from the tribe of Judah, and that king would be David, once a king is appointed from the tribe of Judah, Israel will rule itself sometimes in a diminished capacity, but Israel will rule itself until Shiloh, the Messiah, comes. And here's how they understood ruling yourself. It's a strange thing, but... Everyone understood this in the place and culture. If you ruled yourself, you had the authority to execute capital punishment. In other words, if you and your people were ruling a country, you were the one who could decide who would get the death penalty. If you couldn't give someone the death penalty without somebody else's permission, then you weren't really ruling yourselves. And so guess what happens? Around 12 AD, 12 AD, the Romans took the scepter away from Israel. They removed their ability to execute capital punishment. This is why when Jesus is going to be executed, do you remember that they have to get the Romans to do it because they don't have the authority to simply execute Jesus themselves. This was the foundation of their self-governance and when the Romans issued this decree, when they took the scepter away from Israel, Israel's leaders, priests, and rabbis, they, they tore their clothes and they threw dirt up in the air and upon themselves. They were confused because they knew this prophecy of Genesis 49:10, and yet there seemed to be no sign of Messiah. They were in absolute despair and absolute mourning because they believed that the word of God had failed had failed, something that was inconceivable to them. But little did they know, at that very time, Jesus was in the temple as a 12-year-old boy, astonishing the religious leaders with his knowledge and understanding of the scriptures. Shiloh had come, and the word of God had not failed. Now we know from history that The obedience of the people that's mentioned at the end of verse 10, the obedience of the people was definitely not directed toward Jesus at his first coming. So what's that part of the prophecy talking about? When will that happen? At his second coming, when Jesus rules the earth as its king during the millennium. Verse 11, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. That's all imagery related to Jesus' ministry on the earth and specifically the cross. It's worth digging into that, but unfortunately I can't stop and put the time in in this message to get into those details today, but you can look into that on your own. Verse 12, his eyes are darker than wine. In in Hebrew poetic language, that just means bright or sparkling, not that he'll be stoned as we associate red eyes with today. That's not what it's saying. Just wanted to clear that up. And his teeth whiter than milk. So now after being a disappointing and a dispersed people, Israel would have the opportunity to become a delivered people. Write that down. They'd have the opportunity to become a delivered people because Shiloh... Jesus had come as Messiah. In verse eight, Jesus is shown as the leader. In verse nine, he's shown as the lion. In verse 10, he's the lawgiver and he's the Lord. And in verse 11, he's the landowner, the owner of all things. But we know that they rejected Jesus as their Messiah. They didn't welcome him. They had him crucified. And so in verse 13, that's why we read, Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall adjoin Zidon. Sidon is up in modern day Lebanon and so scholars believe, and I'll explain it here, that this speaks of an exiled people, that Zebulun speaks of an exiled people, a people who are shipped out. Make a note of that. They're an exiled people, shipped out, if you would, across the world. And indeed, after rejecting Jesus, Within 40 years, you know the story of this one too. The Romans came down and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple to rubble. The Jewish people were scattered across the earth in the diaspora, fleeing into Eastern Europe and Boca in Florida and New York, all over the place. They were exiled as a people and the country of Israel ceased to exist. The Romans were so determined to wipe even the memory of Israel off the map that they changed the name of Jerusalem to something else and they changed the name of the country to be incorporated under the term Palestine, which had previously only referred to other territory, not including Israel. They didn't want people to even say the word Israel The Jews had been such a thorn in the flesh of the Romans, so much trouble they wanted them forgotten. Verse 14, Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. So the idea here is a a powerful beast that's submissive to its master. And in the future, The tribe of Issachar would indeed pretty much lie down before Canaanite invaders rather than fight. They would simply make a deal to become the slaves of the Canaanites. And after being exiled, a funny thing happened to the Jewish people if you know their history. Wherever they went, they prospered. They were stubborn as always, still refusing to recognize Jesus but still blessed by the Lord. And wherever they went, They found pleasant and prosperous places, but because of their prosperity, they were persecuted and blamed and hated in historical events like the pogroms of Russia or the concentration camps of the Third Reich and on and on and on we could go. If you know anything about history, you know the story of the wandering Jews, blessed, prosperous, but unable to find any real term Long home, being run out of country after country over and over again. They're great at producing money and wealth, yet they're blinded to the reality of Jesus as Messiah, and they're hated by those around them. Write this down. They are a subdued people. Issachar shows that they are a subdued people. And then in verse 16, we read, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backward. Dan would go on to have the dubious distinction of being the first tribe in the history of Israel to fall into idolatry in Judges 18. And it's widely held that that this is the idea that's being talked about. Dan is going to be a tribe that just causes problems. And so because they're the first to go into idolatry, they are omitted. Their name isn't mentioned when the 12 tribes are sealed in Revelation 7. The names of Dan's sons are omitted. They're left out of the genealogy in Genesis 46 and Numbers 26. He's also blotted out in 1 Chronicles 1 through 10. And any time in the Bible, Dan's mentioned with the other tribes, he's mentioned last. Write this down. Dan speaks of a poisoned people, a poisoned people. And scholars say what this is saying prophetically is that a snake is gonna come out of the tribe of Dan. After they're exiled, after they're scattered across the earth, a snake is gonna come on the scene who's going to smite, bite, and poison the Jewish people And that's why to this day, many Jewish scholars believe that before the real Messiah comes, there will be a very convincing false Messiah who's going to show up. We as Christians actually know who that's going to be, don't we? It's going to be the one known as Antichrist. And those who, who hold this view of interpreting prophetically Genesis 49 tend to then hold the view that he may come from the tribe of Dan that Antichrist will come from the tribe of Dan. There's many people who suspect that the only way he's gonna be able to make peace between the Jews and the Arabs is that he may have to be half of each. Perhaps he has to have a Jewish father from the tribe of Dan and a Muslim Arab mother, and that's how he's gonna be able to speak to both groups of people. That's speculation, of course. And then after this, Imagining this future point in history. We hear the heart cry of Jacob and Israel at this time. In verse 18, I've waited for your salvation, O Lord. And that's going to be the cry stirred up in the Jewish people during and through the events of the Great Tribulation when Antichrist is persecuting them. They'll be waiting, looking, hoping, and praying for their salvation. They're going to first hope in Antichrist. But they'll end up being poisoned by him. Then in verse 19, it says, Gad, a troop shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. Gad is going to be one of those tribes, you might know the story, when they go into the promised land, being led by Joshua, they got to cross the river Jordan. Gad is one of those tribes who says, you know what, we'll just stay here on the east side of the river. Well, this is as far as we need to go. Sure, we'll go fight with you guys, but this is where we're gonna hang out. That place will put them in the buffer zone between Israel and their enemies, and so Gad is gonna be constantly dealing with border raids from enemies against them. Now, under Antichrist, Israel is gonna be an especially, write this down, persecuted people. They're going to be a persecuted people. They will, like Gad, triumph in the end, but like Gad, they're going to be a persecuted people because Jesus, their salvation is going to appear and deliver them at the second coming. Then in verse 20, it says, bread from Asher shall be rich and he shall yield royal dainties. All that means is like royal good food is the idea. Although I don't think anyone will know what you're talking about if you go into Burger King and say I'm I'm in the mood for some royal dainties this evening. I don't think it'll connect for some reason. So settling along the rich northern coast of Canaan, the tribe of Asher will end up becoming very agriculturally successful and prosperous. They'll grow all kinds of great food. And so prophetically, even in this time of persecution, we've talked about this before, there's gonna be this Jewish remnant that will be, you can write this down, there'll be a protected people, a protected people, They'll be well cared for, they'll be fed by the Lord, likely tucked away in the rock city of Petra in Jordan and they're gonna be nourished on the word of God. Revelation 7 tells us that 144,000 Jewish male evangelists are gonna be raised up by God and made invincible and the Jewish people will begin to see the truth. Elijah and Moses in this time are gonna be preaching in the streets of Jerusalem. Things are gonna be happening. And then in verse 21, we read, Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. What words? Again, this is just my speculation, but I suggest to you, it's the words mentioned by Jesus when he was on the earth, weeping over Jerusalem, over Israel's refusal to accept him as Messiah. In Matthew 23, Jesus said, speaking to Israel, see, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A tragic statement but also letting us know that there would come a day when the Jews would see Jesus again and they would cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what's gonna happen through the great tribulation and at the second coming when Israel will become, you can put this on your outline, they'll become a confessing people. A confessing people declaring and confessing that Jesus is Lord, he is Messiah. And people are gonna get saved as they make this confession in the Great Tribulation. More people are gonna get saved in the Great Tribulation than any revival in history has ever seen. And then we get to Joseph, who's a picture of who? Jesus, that's right, Jesus. Verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him and hated him but his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Uh, Truly, this blessing on Joseph has so much connection to Jesus in almost every word. It really does deserve its own study. Again, I don't have time to get into it today, but I'd encourage you to dig into this line by line this week in your own studies and make the connections to Jesus. It's rich stuff. Verse 25. By the God of your Father who will help you and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your Father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was, underline, was separate from his brothers, was because Joseph was reunited and was because prophetically at this time, Jesus will be reunited with his brothers, the Jews. They'll be reunited. This all speaks of, everything about Joseph speaks about the work of Jesus and the second coming when he sets up his kingdom on earth for the millennium when Israel will be, you can write this down, they'll be a redeemed people, a redeemed people. Regarding Joseph's two sons, Ephraim would go on to lead the northern tribes of Israel. When they split at that point in Israel's history into the northern tribes and the southern tribes, Ephraim is leading the northern tribes, while Manasseh will go on to be known for its valor. Uh, Guys like Gideon and Jephthah, who are mentioned prominently in the book of Judges, will come from the tribe of Manasseh. And then in verse 27, it says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. The idea is is in there a little bit of extreme cruelty and that's what would happen with this tribe of Benjamin. a most obvious example is gonna be the horrible thing that that tribe did to the concubine in Judges 19. I don't have to tell you to do that because just by tantalizing you, by telling you it's awful, you're all gonna look it up later because that's just how we're wired, right? The tribe of Benjamin is gonna have this violent spirit making them excellent warriors. Both Saul and his son, Jonathan, will come from the tribe of Benjamin. But Benjamin will also produce heroes like Esther and another violent man who will be so transformed by an encounter with Jesus, he'll go on to write most of the New Testament. The apostle Paul is from the tribe of Benjamin. And Paul's transformation is a model for what will happen to the Jews. They'll go from persecuting Jesus to praising Jesus. And in the millennial kingdom, you can write this down, like this prophecy about Benjamin, they'll become a victorious people. A victorious people. Through Jesus, they'll come out of the great tribulation victorious. Through Jesus, they will triumph over their enemies who come in and try to destroy Jerusalem and Israel and the Jews. They will triumph most notably over Satan himself because of Jesus. Verse 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father spoke to them. And he blessed them, and he blessed each one according to his own blessing. Then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Now, did you catch the unexpected detail in Jacob's burial request? If you didn't, you should underline it. I'll tell you what it is. Clearly, he had long intended to be buried with his father Isaac and his grandfather, Abraham. But apparently, we learn he had also intended for a long time to be buried with his favorite wife, Leah? Leah? But we read so many times that Rachel was his favorite wife. Remember, Rachel was the one he worked 14 years to marry. She was the hottie with the body. Leah was the ugly sister that he only married because his crooked uncle Laban tricked him, pulling the old switcheroo on their wedding night. And yet here in Genesis 49, at the end of his life, he reveals that his plan, apparently for a long time, has been to be buried with Leah. Leah. Why? I want to suggest to you, it's real simple. You know, once you start hitting middle age, the older you get, the less good you look. I don't know if you know this, if you're in denial, I'm sorry to be the one to tell you this, your spouse is lying to you because they love you, it's the right thing for them to do, but once you hit middle age, looks wise, you're not trending up anymore. It doesn't matter who you are, age is still undefeated. It's still undefeated. And so as you get older, everybody starts looking a little more worn. But as that happens, the importance of a person's character, the importance of a person's personality begins to shine through more clearly. And while there's a lot that a man will put up with for a beautiful woman, as that beauty fades, his reasons to put up with her begin to fade as well. And so it would seem that as age and time ran their course, Leah's internal beauty became increasingly apparent to Joseph, just as Rachel's lack of inner beauty became increasingly apparent to the extent that Jacob said, I want to be buried with Leah when I die, not Rachel. I mean, Rachel was hot, but she was high-maintenance. And while Jacob served and knew the Lord, you know, he he didn't have all the details we have about heaven and eternity, so he was thinking, I don't know how this death thing works. I mean, I don't know because i got multiple wires if I've got to choose one and I'm gonna be stuck with them forever. And if that's the case, dear God, I choose to be buried with Leah at the end of the day, not with Rachel. And can I just say this, that this is a thought exercise worth running through your mind when you're choosing a spouse, young person, single person. This is good counsel to give your children. When good looks have faded, will you want to just sit with them and talk? Will you want to just be with them? Because the older you get, the more of that you're going to be doing. The older you get, the smaller the house is going to feel as you spend more and more time just hanging out together. This is why so many couples run into crisis when the kids move out and they become empty nesters because they look at each other and they go, I just realized you're incredibly annoying. That's what happens. They've had the kids as a distraction for 20, 25, sometimes 30 years. Now the kids are gone and they're like, I just noticed that I can't stand being in the same room as you. I don't even like you. the older you get, the more you're going to be spending time together. So as you evaluate a spouse, ask yourself the question, hey, when the looks are a small part of the equation, am I going to enjoy just being with this person or is that going to be laborious? And one more thing on this. Let's be real for a minute. Let's be real and admit that Pretty much nobody marries the person they think they're marrying, right? If you're married, you know this is true. Nobody marries the person they think they're marrying because everybody has junk, everybody has issues, everybody has problems and annoying habits that we manage to suppress till the deal is sealed. And then that stuff somehow comes out. Year after year after year after year. And sometimes our response is to say, like Jacob with Leah, I was tricked. I was deceived. You know, I I thought I was marrying one person, and I woke up the next morning, and I was looking at a unibrow six inches from my face. This is not the person I signed up to marry. And sometimes we say, I didn't know they had these issues. I didn't know they were so selfish. I didn't know they were this combative when they argued. I was tricked. I was deceived. I was misled. I was defrauded. But you know what God's word says. Unless there's significant abuse or marital unfaithfulness, you stick it out. You stay committed. Why? Not only because marriage is supposed to model God's commitment and faithfulness to us, but also because God knows that transformations in a marriage can happen even after decades. Even after decades. That's what happened in Jacob's life. He went all the way from viewing Leah as a trickster, a deceiver, and all the way from hating her to at the end of his life viewing her as a blessing, even more than Rachel, the woman he had been head over heels in love with in his relative youth, the woman he was so struck with he cried, remember that, like kind of a wimp when he first saw her. Don't quit your marriage and don't underestimate what the Lord can do even after years and years. Would you write this down? Time reveals that internal beauty is far more valuable than external beauty. Internal beauty is far more valuable than external beauty. We'll keep going into chapter 50. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. You'll know from history, of course, the Egyptians were the experts in history at embalming human bodies, and the process in this sort of case actually took 40 days. And then we read, and the Egyptians mourned for him for 70 days. That's two and a half months of national mourning across the country of Egypt for Joseph's father. That time was only two days less than they would mourn for the death of a pharaoh. That's how much the Egyptians revered Joseph. They had so much respect for Joseph. That's why they mourned that way for his father. Verse four, now when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's house. Only their little ones, their flocks, and their herds they left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. So this massive caravan of people carrying Jacob's body head out from Egypt toward Canaan. Then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father, and when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. They were blown away by what they were seeing, by the spectacle. Therefore, its name was called Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. So his sons did for him just as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who went up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they're saying, maybe Joseph was just waiting for dad to die before he killed us in revenge. So they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. Oh, hey, Joseph, right before dad died, uh, while you were in the bathroom one time, he said, tell Joseph I want him to forgive all of you. It was, it was pretty much dad's dying wish. This is such a brother-type thing to do, isn't it? And then we read, and Joseph wept, When they spoke to him, why does Joseph weep? Because it breaks his heart that they don't yet believe. They don't yet understand that he's really forgiven them totally and completely. And the reason is because they just can't believe that he ever could forgive them for what they did to him. They don't see how anybody could be forgiven for that. This is the emotion that the Jewish people are gonna deal with when Jesus reveals himself to them at the second coming. And we really can't blame them because even those who are not Jews have held the position before that what they did to Jesus is unforgivable. There's many Christians who sadly hold to that theology. The only problem with that is the Bible, as we shall see. Verse 18, Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold we are your servants, Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? Centuries later the apostle Paul would write this in Romans 12:19 it's on your outlines. He would say beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The idea is that as believers when we accept the forgiveness of Jesus, we also agree to extend forgiveness to those who have wronged us. That's part of the deal. I'm not talking about letting someone continue to mistreat you or abuse you. I'm talking about whether or not you forgive them. I'm talking about whether or not you seek revenge against them. When we understand that all of our wrongs, all of our sins were taken by Jesus and punished on the cross, it's supposed to make us less eager to see those who have wronged us punished justly because we understand that if we were punished justly, we'd have a real problem. And somehow, some way, Joseph understood this. He understood that he had received the grace of God himself. And so he had truly forgiven his brothers. He was able to say, guys, I'm not God. Only God knows your hearts. But as for me, I've forgiven you. I've forgiven you. When we feel justified, when we feel like it's okay to live in bitterness and unforgiveness towards someone, when we feel like we're justified in taking revenge against them, whether it's physically or emotionally, in any way, it's because we've lost touch with how much we've been forgiven. And the solution is, is a visit to the table of communion. It's a visit to the table of communion where we're reminded, oh yeah, I was forgiven so much, so much. Write this down. When we've encountered the grace of God, we'll extend the grace of God. When we've encountered the grace of God, we'll extend the grace of God. That's why we say, if there's someone you're struggling to forgive, don't try and stir up forgiveness in yourself. Spend some time reflecting on the grace of God toward you, how much he's forgiven you and I for, and you suddenly won't be able to be quite as bitter toward that person, knowing what Jesus has forgiven you for. And here's the verse in verse 20. You want to underline the whole thing. Here's the verse that sums up the whole story of Joseph. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about as it is this day to save many people alive don't be afraid brothers what you did was evil it was inspired by satan but the truth is that my heavenly father was working through all of it in order to save many people including you do you see the parallels here to what jesus is going to say to the jews when he reveals himself to them at the second coming There. They're gonna be thinking, how can you ever forgive us for what we did to you? And Jesus is gonna say to them, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. Yeah, you crucified me, you rejected me, but my heavenly Father had a plan through that to save many people, including you. And here's the principle, write this down. It's a simple one, but when God has determined that the outcome will be good, the outcome will be good. (laughs) When he's determined the outcome will be good, the outcome will be good. And what's the good news for you and I? The good news is Romans 8, 28, that we know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. In other words, if you belong to Jesus, then the outcome of all things is gonna be good. Even every hurt, every bit of pain, every failure, even every sin will be used by God in some way to accomplish something good. Yes, even the sin, God can use our sin to remind us and teach us that sin leads to destruction, which reminds us that his ways lead to life, which results in us choosing his ways and living in his ways. Even the Christian who loses their life for their faith wakes up the next moment in eternity face to face with Jesus saying, well done, good and faithful servant. And they'll receive eternal rewards for standing strong on their faith. When God has determined that the outcome will be good, it doesn't matter who or what tries to stop it, the outcome will be good. And if you belong to Jesus, then you can know this. He's determined the outcome of your life, and it's gonna be good, it's gonna be good. You can bet your life on it. Verse 21, now therefore do not be afraid, he says, I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them, and he spoke kindly to them. That's what it's gonna be like when Jesus is reunited with the Jewish people. You might say, Jeff, we're not Jewish, why are you talking so much about this? Here's why because it blesses me to realize that if that's how Jesus responds to his own people who rejected him and helped him be crucified, then I can believe in his mercy and grace and forgiveness toward me. I can believe that he really does love me, that he really will provide for me and care for me and comfort me even though I don't deserve it. The hope of all who come to God has never been their goodness, but rather the goodness and kindness of God, and that's still true today. Our hope is not in our goodness, but in the goodness and kindness of God displayed on the cross by Jesus in our place. He loves us, he forgives us, and he provides for us. Verse 22, so Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. He lived to see his great-grandchildren grow up and play around him in his old age. He lived out a blessed life in Egypt, telling his grandchildren and great-grandchildren stories about the things the Lord had done for their family long before they were born. Grandparents, man, tell your grandkids about the Lord. Talk with them about the Lord. It's a phenomenal way to bless them by raising them in the knowledge that they come from a family that's been loving the Lord for multiple generations and that has been blessed by the Lord for multiple generations. Tell them some of those stories about things you prayed for that happened. Tell them the times when you had no money, you were in crisis, you didn't know what you were going to do and God came through. Tell them about the healings and the answered prayers. And if you ever think, they don't seem to think it's all that extraordinary. That's the point. The point is that they grow up believing that following and serving Jesus is normal. That trusting God radically and taking steps of faith is normal. That seeing prayers miraculously answered is normal. That talking about the Lord is normal. You don't need to see them go, wow, that's amazing, that's incredible. If they grow up thinking that's normal and unextraordinary, what a blessing that is. That's the point, that's the goal. Well, Jeff, I can't do that. The relationship with their parents is, is too strained. I don't even get to see my grandkids. Or maybe for some there's a geographical issue in play. Then bring up your grandkids on your knees, pray for them. Pray for them, pray for them. You've got the time, pray for them. Verse 24, and Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but, underline the rest of this, God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And who could have known at that time that that would be hundreds of years later under the most dramatic of circumstances in the leadership of Moses? Only hundreds of years later that promise would come to pass, and that of course is the story of the book of Exodus. Verse 25, then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. After all the events of the book of Exodus, hundreds of years later, when Israel is being led by Joshua into the promised land. We read this in Joshua twenty-four thirty-two. it's on your outlines. The bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel had brought up out of Egypt, underline they buried at Shechem. They buried at Shechem in the plot of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of silver and which had become an inheritance of the children of Joseph. Moses brought the bones of Joseph with them when the children of Israel were set free from slavery in Egypt. And it wasn't simply to keep that old promise the children of Israel had made to Joseph. It was to remind all of them of the promise God had spoken to the children of Israel all those years ago. The promise that God would be with them and lead them into the promised land. God's word came to pass hundreds of years later than anyone could have imagined, but it came to pass, as it always has and always will. And when you and I take communion, as we'll have a chance to do in just a minute, we too are declaring and reminding ourselves, someday I'm going home. Someday I'm going home. The Lord has made a promise that he's gonna bring me home safely to be with him. And we need that reminder. I'll wrap up with this. The, The book of Genesis begins with creation, And it ends with a coffin. It begins with glory and it ends in a grave. It begins with the living God and it ends with a dead man. It begins with the explosive creation of the universe and and ends with a box of bones. Why? It's the Holy Spirit's commentary on the condition of man and man's broken state, his fall into sin. If you haven't figured it out yet, Joseph was a great man. And yet, he still died. He was still touched by the effects of sin because as the word says, we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of God's glory. That's why we need a greater than Joseph. That's why we need Jesus. He's the only one who could and has conquered death and sin. And because of him, we're gonna go home to eternity with him. So take communion today in this coming time of worship and remind yourself that he loves you, he's provided for you, and he's gonna get you home. And don't give up on your marriage, even if you ever feel tricked or deceived. God's not done. Give him room and time to move. Give him time to write a surprise ending. He did it for Jacob and Leah. And whatever you're facing, don't forget that Joseph went from being sold as a slave in Egypt to dying surrounded by family, grandkids, and great grandkids, blessing the Lord, talking about the Lord after a long and prosperous career in Egypt. When God is writing your story, it doesn't matter how dark it gets. You have no idea how God can turn your story around. No idea. He does it all the time. So don't lose heart. Don't lose faith. Nothing's too difficult for the Lord. He's a God of miracles. With that, would you bow your head and close your eyes and let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that we belong to you. Thank you that we can come before you and not find a God who's mad at us or angry at us or ready to list all the things that we've done wrong. We don't find a God who's ready to give us justice, but we find a God who died in our place for every sin we've ever committed, a God who says, do not fear, a God who loves us and comforts us and provides for us. A God who, after visiting the earth in the person of Jesus, said, I'm only leaving so I can go and prepare a place for you. That where I am, you may be also. I'm going to make a home for you and you can bet your life that if I'm going to do that, I'm gonna come again and bring you to be with me there. Thank you, Lord, that one way or another, you have determined that the outcome of our life will be good. And so it's gonna be good. Not because we can make it happen, but because You have decreed it. And when you speak a word, the universe bends to conform to your will. Whatever needs to happen will happen because you're over it all. You're sovereign over it all, Lord God. And thank you that in your sovereignty, you have decreed and declared good for us. Thank you for that, Lord. Father, just again, in the name of your son, Jesus, as we take communion and we receive again your forgiveness and your grace, Lord, we just release any bitterness, any unforgiveness that we might have toward anyone. Because as we look at you, as we're reminded of you on the cross, Lord, how can we possibly demand justice when we've received so much grace? And so we let it go, and we ask that in the name of Jesus, you would fill our hearts with grace, that you would heal any wounds that need to be bound up by you, Jesus, and by your spirit. And we obey you this evening, Lord. We forgive those who trespass against us, just as you have forgiven us for our trespasses.